Stephen Graham Jones' latest novel, The Only Good Indians, takes us to the Blackfeet Nation in Montana's fertile forests and the undeniable mystery and allure they hold for hunters. This is the backdrop for a stunning horror story where four Native American men come face to face with the karmic forces that will exact revenge on them for disrespecting the land and its sacred creatures. This is Book Public from Texas Public Radio. I'm Yvette Benavides. Ten years after four friends come upon an incredible scene of a massive herd of elk and cannot resist the temptation to kill them as easy prey, they realize that now retribution for that transgression has caught up with them. They've spent the last decade slowly leaving behind the culture and tradition of their Blackfeet nation, but this earlier act remains the worst offense of them all. What emerges in this revenge story is a unique tale of horror, one full of mystery and intrigue. It's a scary story, sure, but it's also profound in what it offers to us about the ways we consider Native American life and identity. I spoke to novelist Stephen Graham Jones about his latest novel, The Only Good Indians. So just by way of introduction, maybe for our listeners who have not yet read the book, I think it's important just to say up front, there are so many threads at work here. I mean, it's a horror novel. It's literary fiction. There's high drama, but then there's some humor and there's some social commentary. But how would how do you set this up for people who ask you, well, you know, what's it about? I just say it's a slasher, and a slasher is um, usually a group of people commit some sort of trespass or prank or insult or crime and walk away from that day thinking everything is fine until at some point, you know, five years down the road, ten years down the road, a spirit of vengeance comes back to make them atone for that in, you know, usually pretty violent ways. And the way, I mean, that's what the only good Indians is. The only good Indians is four guys are out in the field after elk up on the Blackfeet Reservation in Montana. And they go too far. They do something they shouldn't do. And they walk away from that day having committed a trespass against both the elk and their their tribe. And then 10 years later, um, something is making them pay for that. And there's a lot of basketball mixed in. That's pretty much how I sell it. There is a lot of basketball in this. And I want to ask you about that in a little while. But the four mm-hmm. friends here are Lewis, Ricky, Gabe, and, and Cass, Cassidy. Yep. And we see how their stories play out. But there's like this looming kind of karmic situation. So it's a, it's a slasher, right? So I guess the idea is that they somebody's going to do something that's going to incite revenge nature strikes back right and so some people think of that idea as a, as a kind of a trope but it's so not a trope in this novel i just see it as um it's just a very unexpected thing and is that part of the idea that what's appealing to you is that it is this horror novel at its heart, right? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, that's, um, I consider myself a horror writer, and I wanted to write a horror novel this time out, and so, yeah, that was important to me that, um, I mean, I did want that revenge dynamic or that closed cycle of justice to get started, which is 
which you know is the slasher that closed cycle of justice. But um, um, I also knew like when you when you when you're writing a horror novel, you, it's kind of like you're in a contract with the audience. You um, have to you know have this much gore and this much tension and um, and try to do a jump scare or two, all the, all that kind of stuff. And I love that. It's it, it's wonderful. I love to um, jump into that that rule book, I guess and then have to play by those roles, you know? Yeah, I mean, there's so much here that's so psychological, but I do want to ask you about the gore. You mentioned the gore. No mm-hmm. spoilers, right? But there's mm-hmm. there are scenes here that push at the readers a little bit. It doesn't mm-hmm. stay there, right? The character of Lewis. I'm so invested in his story for about 120, 130 yeah. pages, it's almost half of the yeah. book. I'm I'm all in yeah. and I'm invested. And I and then I just mm-hmm. trust these extreme scenes that close out those 100 130 pages. Mm-hmm. The tension has been so ramped up and up and, the, and we're so roiling with him in this psychological space, but then these really gory scenes happen. So that's just part and parcel of the horror novel of this of the genre, but how do your other readers react to those scenes? It's kind of, it's tough on the stomach, right? For some, for some readers. <laughs> yeah, no, I think, I think it has been. Um, I get a lot of responses from readers saying that, you know, right around that point, they have to put the book down for a while and um, reconsider whether they want to go on or go, go do something else for an hour or a day or something like that. And um, to me, that's the greatest compliment as a horror writer. If you can, make someone like push the book away then you're you're pulling on the right levers you know story-wise and and yeah i mean as, as far as gore in a in a story um i think what what it feels to me like what gore does in a story is it launches the reader into a horror space where they know the rules don't quite hold that they have the rules they've become accustomed to don't quite hold and anything can happen and and it, it, I mean, that horror space is pretty much defined or characterized by uncertainty. And once you can like pull the rug out from the reader's feet like that and keep it out for the rest of the book, I think that's kind of when you've maybe got them. If they're kind of floating around and and you are their only like tether, you know? I mean, there's so much about the psychological thriller aspect of it that's almost scarier <laughs> to me in so many mm-hmm. ways. But then, yeah, it's sort of like, okay, we we know what we're walking into. But, but the my point had been just this idea of how to stay in the novel for that space, except that I had trusted for so long and was following this character for so long that even though I, well, I'm just about to spoil it, so I won't say what I was going to say. Um, I was just so invested that that once that happened and I just sort of had to get my bearings a little bit, then I just I just plowed through, and of course yeah. it was worth it. Um, but yeah, it's just it's part of the deal. Yeah, it's, you just sign up for that when you open up a book like this. Yeah, it kind of is. Like if you go to a haunted house attraction, then um, you pay your twenty dollars and walk through those big double doors into darkness and fog and screams, and um, you know that there's going to be stuff in there that's going to make you jump and make you kind of regret having walked through those double doors. But you're already through the doors. And, you just got to push through till, till you exit, you know, mm-hmm. until the person at the end 
chases you with a chainsaw, like it always happens. <laughs> what is it about the scary story that's so appealing to you? What What is it? I mean, everybody likes that feeling, I guess, yeah. of of yeah. of suspense and being scared. What What's What's drawing you to that as a writer? As a writer, I like that um, scary stories can provoke a visceral reaction from the reader that the reader is not necessarily willing to give. Like, I think we all do this when we go into a horror story or movie or attraction or whatever it is. We're always looking for the zippers, you know, the things that will tell us that this is um, fake, that that isn't a real monster, this isn't a real zombie, that kind of stuff. And on the page you can spot a bad line or a poor transition or, you know, all the all the little techniques and craft stuff that can go wrong. And you can say, that's a zipper. I saw that. This is not a real possession story. This is something that the, the writer dreamed up and was trying to foist off on me. And you can walk away from that story, that book, thinking, I saw the zipper. I'm safe. But then, you know, 2.30 in the morning, you're going for a glass of water down the hall and you realize that the story is actually that to you. And you're not sure you can actually walk down this dark hall without running. And <laughs> that's the reaction that horror stories can do. It's like they're, it's like a horror story is laying eggs in your mind that don't hatch until the lights go out. You know? The way that speculative fiction or the horror genre works a lot of the time is um, with a writer who is is sort of using that to tell another story, right, a, a more profound story. I mean, this is still a very profound story about so many other things. Um, so it's just it's an access point, I guess, in a way, to to yeah. tell another story. You're, you're right. You're right in speculative genres because I think all speculative genres, um, to some extent, do that. And you know, it could be that just all stories do that. Really, it's like you have to get the reader to your story space in some way, you have to attract them. And you attract them with um, a big white whale or with a trip to Mars or with, um, here's what my work day looks like. And, and once you can lure them in like that, then you can um, talk about the, I want to say big things, but I don't, I never feel like I'm talking about big things. I, I feel like I'm just trying to talk about real people. But when you talk about real people, then big things kind of get dressed up, I feel like. Yeah, these are char- these are very flawed characters and that's mm-hmm. I mean that's just the stuff of great literature. So, I, yeah, I I hear what you're saying. It's I guess it's hard to talk about your own work as like, oh, I'm writing about the big stuff, but it's there because these <laughs> yeah. are, you know, these are characters that we can identify with on in different ways. Now, I know that you're a basketball fan. There's a lot of basketball yeah. in this novel. Yeah. And I just yeah. feel like it's so realistic in the ways that the um, the backstories of the characters come into play, and then they sort of emerge in uh, in more magnified ways. There are a lot of subjects in this novel that seem researched. I don't imagine you needed to do much research on basketball, mm-hmm. but do you really know yeah. this much about hunting and or elk or lighting <laughs> or you know do you really yeah. did you have to do a lot of research to write about those things not no i mean i've been out after elk since i was 12 years old probably and i've been messing with janky spotlights in the ceiling for forever as well you know um, <laughs> and of course i've been playing ball forever um i'm trying to think what i did have to research i mean i would hit little bumps 
that I'd have fuck with Eyeshine. I wanted to know um, in this novel whether like deer and elk and horses, whether their eyeshine, like in headlights, are different tints, different colors. Uh-huh. And um, instead of actually doing the research, I just texted a friend and asked, or my brother-in-law and asked him, and he he figured it all out for me. And I needed to know something about a rifle, so I texted my dad. You know, and uh-huh. I needed to know something uh, to confirm something about Browning or the reservation. So I texted a couple of friends up there, and that's generally how I do research. Either I either know it myself, or I can fake it convincingly, or uh-huh. I text somebody who who knows. But I'm doing the research myself. Unless it's a re- unless it's research for vehicles, I like to do that research myself. But the trick is, I know a whole lot about trucks and cars. Uh-huh. Um, but I mean, I can never be sure. Like, did did the '54 have a sport bumper or the '55 have a sport bumper? So I do have to research that kind of stuff, <laughs> you know. And I like it a lot. Well, it comes through so seamlessly in the novel, right? I mean, even when Lewis is focusing on the washer, was this the top side or the, you know, what side of the washer is this? I thought this is really, really specific, but it didn't push us out of the narrative. It's sort of like, and even the stuff about the, about the bike and so on. So I just found that so interesting and it is very seamless and it just gives us a sense of the character and the preoccupations of the characters. And so, yeah, but I kept thinking, how does he have time to write if he's researching all this stuff? <laughs> so. You know, that, that is, that, you bring up the washer, because the washer goes on that Road King, that Harley that Lewis has. And um, I've never had a Road King. I've never had a Harley at all. And I did have to um, look up and figure out what year I wanted his Road King to be, and then kind of look at some of the tech specs and, drill into some discussion boards to find out what people say about, you know, this year, this model and everything. And that was probably the most research I did for this novel. I bet. Wow. Motorcycle stuff. I'm, I've ridden, I've ridden a lot of motorcycles. I, have a lot of, I used to have a lot of friends who, who rode, but um, I've been awesome myself for probably 20 years, you know, so that was a little bit of a research dive for me. There's also <laughs> a, um, a lot of sort of, I don't want to call it humor, like it's not uh-huh. like knee slappingly funny yeah. or, but there's just this very wry, dry, you know, with a wink, sort of uh-huh. tongue in cheek humor that comes through. That is, again, it contributes to how realistically drawn these characters are. But I was looking at the titles of the chapters are the days of the week in the first part Mm -hmm. and in the second part Mm -hmm. there are these interesting kind of colloquially like idiomatic expressions Mm -hmm. i mean even those sort of come through as like this sort of sardonic like you know one little indian or shirts and skins Mm -hmm. and i thought that's so interesting is um not that they would go unnoticed but they're subtle. And then some of the things that the characters say to each other. So how does mm-hmm. the, the idea of humor work for you as you're creating your one of your novels? I think um, when you're writing horror, you have to find a pressure release valve that you can like depress every, I don't know, 10 or 12, maybe 15 pages. Because horror tends to escalate, 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 or inflate, 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 and it, it really quickly reaches like a plateau of shriekiness that's just flat. And 
and anytime you have like flatness in your novel instead of spikes, then I think the reader can become bored and drift away. So with horror, you you, you do want to have like scare, scare, dread, dread, you know, uncertainty, mm-hmm. and then have a laugh or you know some sort of riotside or something like that that functions to release that mounting pressure and reset things so you can dip down and start to climb again and then dip down and start to climb again. And that, that's how I, I like to use humor and horror myself. It was very welcome, I have to say. So. <laughs> um, I want to ask you, too, about the women in your novel. I mean, these are very, yeah. very important characters. Um, yeah. Peta and Denora and Shaney. And so, so you have like these these guys at the beginning but there's no mistaking the the story of the women and and how important those are as well oh yeah for sure um and i kind of wanted to set that up where like with lewis and Peter, lewis in his head he's a an athlete a basketball star but get him on the court with Peter or in any athletic competition with Peter, and she smokes him you know <laughs> um, and i, I mean because i think that's often the way it is like dude's we always think that we've got we've got this covered, we can do this, but um, I think that's just in our heads, you know. I think there's always someone who can do it far better, who is far more competent. They get right in there, you know, in these uh, different scenes that, that, again, I won't talk about, that I won't spoil for the listener, but uh, they get right in there, and it doesn't seem like it's um, it's too incredible. It's sort of like, yeah... I, yeah, I know women like that, <laughs> you know, yeah. so who yeah. are in certain relationships, um, super hardworking, and, or they do jobs that you might not expect, um, mm-hmm. and they know things that you might not expect them to know. And, and so I just found that yeah. so real and at the same time so refreshing in this book. Oh, wonderful. Thank you. And, I mean, if I have any guide or model for this, it's just um... – probably all the strong women I've been lucky enough to have in my life, you know, my wife, my mother, my grandma, my daughter, you know. Mm-hmm. Uh, how wonderful. That's wonderful. How has it been uh, during the pandemic to, to promote this book with the, the world outside your, your home? Oh, it was, it was, it's been unique. I've never had to um, promote solely from my office chair in front of my computer you know, it's, it's, a, it's a different it's a different experience for sure but you know it, it seems to be working like um i think it was actually less about the the writers and the publishers adapting to this new model than it was about the readers finding or figuring out this new model you know yeah. because i mean my publicist will tell me be on zoom at 2 30 or whatever i can do that but it, it doesn't matter if the audience you know, if there's not a like a quorum of people there to to talk to or to talk with, mm-hmm. and um, but I think the readers are hungry enough for interaction with each other and with the, the writers that, or just with books, really, I should say, you know, mm-hmm. that they've they figured out this new model almost immediately, and I think it's thanks to the readers that it's been working for for me and for so many people as well. Um. I was lucky I was able to do one in-person event and at a local bookstore here. There, I mean, it was socially distanced. Everyone wore, like, three masks and everything. It was really early in the pandemic, it mm-hmm. feels like. But 
it was it was really neat to at least get to go to one bookstore. Oh, that's good. As far as promoting on Zoom, like I, I do conventions all the time, and you know I have to fly to Seattle or you know um, Massachusetts or wherever, and which takes like a day of travel to get there. Then I'm at the con for a day or two, then it's a day of travel back. Where it, which you know it's like a lot of time away from from home, anyways. But promoting in the pandemic means that um, I, I do a panel for a convention at seven at night, and then I sign off Zoom at seven forty-five, and I walk out of my study and I'm in my home, and that's really nice. I don't have to like jump on a plane and a bus and a train and all that stuff. It's yeah. really nice to be home as soon as I turn that, as soon as I hit that red button, you know. Not there aren't too many silver linings, but I suppose that's one. I know you teach creative writing. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. And your students must see how prolific you are, but they must think your your role in the um, graphic narrative and comic book realm is pretty cool. Do they do your students in, yeah. try to engage you in in talking about those projects? Oh, definitely. I mean, I, I I teach comic book courses sometimes, and I'm about to start teaching a script writing course for comic books. So um, I'll be diving even deeper into that aspect of it, but. But yeah, they they'll talk to me about just how the comic industry works, and um, I'll I'll show them stuff that I'm working on in all its stages. You know, we'll start out with the script, and then that'll change through the you know the editor's input. Then we'll go to sketches and thumbnails and pencils and ink and lettering and coloring and all that stuff. And I try to keep my students involved as much as I can without like you know, breaking the trust of the people I'm working with or anything. And they, I, I hope it gives them a, like a angle into the industry that they wouldn't have otherwise had. You know, that's always my goal, to give them like a, a leg up into finding their own way. I heard something you said in an interview where you talked about how impressed you are with your students and, and all the, mm-hmm. all their talents and all that they know, but that you were going to be quite insistent on that they know where to put the comma. It's like there are yeah. certain things yeah. that you really want to arm them with. I mean, so the, the practical knowledge that you're giving them in, in, in engaging them in this in the graphic narrative world, but then also just the importance of getting their work out there, work that's clean and mm-hmm. uh, clearly communicates. And I was just so struck by that idea. Yeah, well, I mean, you know, editors or flush file readers, when they're looking at a stack of manuscripts, they don't dive into it looking for gold. They dive into it looking to make it shorter. And the first means they have for thinning that, that herd is um, mistakes, the easy mistakes, the missed commas, the mechanical errors, the... Um, lapses in formatting, that kind of stuff. And if they see that on the first page, then they can put put that story in the recycle bin and move on to the next one that much faster. And and everybody wants to get more and more done, of course. So, yeah, they're not looking they're in the in that initial stage, they're not looking for for gold. They're looking for reasons to throw your stuff away. And so I tell my students, don't don't give people an excuse to throw your stuff away. Yeah, I just thought I appreciate that so much. I think that's good advice. What do you what do you make of the way the needle has moved, maybe kind of imperceptibly, but it's moved around mm-hmm. making making right 
the great wrongs in like mm-hmm. cultural appropriation, for example, tearing mm-hmm. down monuments that have glorified some tremendous wrongs mm-hmm. in our country. And that yeah. it's, it's happened in 2020 in the wake of the killing of George Floyd, yeah. um, in the middle of a pandemic, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think about your work in 2020 as in some ways helping tear down these monuments and contributing to a, a new narrative? Do you look at your writing life that way? Um, I, I do always feel like I'm pushing back against something. Um, I, feel, I, I feel like it's not specific to 2020. I hope I've been doing it since my first novel back in 2000. Um, but, you know, I always remember one of my philosophy professors um, was talking about a certain philosopher and explaining to him to us, and he said, he said, this guy, like, imagine the establishment is a, a huge, like, stone column. And this guy is a little cartoon character, infinitesimally small at the base of that column. And he's trying to punch that, that establishment and knock it over. And he's just hurting himself doing it over and over, but he's not going to quit punching. And I think a lot of writers feel like that's where we are, you know? The establishment is this big, formidable column. But... You just got to hit it at the base over and over and over until something breaks. And if enough enough of us are trying to do that, maybe it'll topple. Stephen, thank you so much for your time and for talking to me today. Oh, thank you. It's been wonderful talking. Thanks for having me. Stephen Graham Jones is the author of The Only Good Indians. He's also the Ivana Baldwin Professor of English at the University of Colorado, Boulder. This has been Book Public on Texas Public Radio. Write to us at bookpublic at tpr.org. Jacob Rosati composed our theme music. Our digital producer is Bree Kirkham. Dan Katz is Texas Public Radio's news director. I'm Yvette Benavides.